Hi, welcome back to AlderPod. Today's AlderPod is episode 20. This will be chapter 18 of the Alders Gate, Departure. Sit down, please. Nesme leaned forward, indicating the chair before Heon, a white painted chair in the middle of the strange round room. Cora was slightly unsettled. Walking into the room, she had the immediate sensation that she'd been there before, or a place much like it. But that was impossible. Then it dawned on her, as white and clean as it was, the room reminded her of Professor's workshop. Nesme, too, it appeared, was a collector of tinkerings. But here, the tinkerings which took up the majority of the elegant whitewashed walls were less of a distraction and more of an ornament to the already beautiful room. Your friend, the bard, how is he? asked the Sid. Cora had been staring at the hundreds of moving mechanical objects on the walls behind Nesme. She startled a bit to attention and said, Oh, Emery? He's better, I think. At least, he looks better, but he seems... Seems? The Sib folded Hea's hands together and nodded. Cora sat on the white chair, sinking softly into it. The simple act of sitting helped clear her churning mind. She'd been so occupied as of late, worrying about Emery, about Denna, about her father at Aldermoot. Something in the rhythmic cadence of the tinkerings and simple beauty of the room calmed her. Well, it just seems that he's so much more distracted than usual. Jumpy, confused. Up until a day or so ago, I would have considered him among my most trusted friends, though I'd known him only a few days. But now, I'm wondering if perhaps I don't know him as well as I thought, that perhaps... Nesme nodded, and that was all. Cora couldn't be sure, but she thought Han looked rather concerned about the matter. Hea's features became clouded a moment, shrouded. Then the veil lifted and Nesme's eyes twinkled, and Hea smiled. Are you all right? asked Cora, hesitating. I was just thinking about the bard. He's the first man to set foot in here in the Nithings, back as far as we have got records, and I cannot dispute that he's significantly troubled, though to what cause I am unsure. Hea continued, There are bad dreams and there are terrors. Emery has spoken to you about what happened in Barnet. Yes, Cora said. Her voice was quiet when she answered, for she felt her stomach do a loop-de-loop. It's what happened whenever someone mentioned Barnet, or Vel for that matter. Nesme said, We all suffer, of course. You've suffered. Professor has suffered. But Emery suffered alone, and I fear for him. You fear? asked Cora, regarding the sib before her. I hadn't thought it possible. You seem impassable. The sib smiled, almost laughed. Hea's eyes crinkled, showing momentary wrinkles about the eyes. Hea was, Cora thought, older than she initially believed. My fears are greater than you could imagine, Miss Gray, said the sib. I am responsible for the preservation of my people, and much of that is at stake. And I am concerned that Emery is to play a part. In what? I'm not sure. You understand that your arrival here in the Nithings has caused something of an interruption in our everyday existences, and made us rethink about our borders, our alliances? You see, like it or not, you have made us, 
a people historically neutral on all the goings-ons up here, choose sides. Sides. If what you say is true, then Malus I ordered the abduction of a large number of girls in the territories, our sisters. Our Oaksgard torched and destroyed at least two towns. Nesme reached across Hea's desk for the clay teapot there and opened the lid, peeking inside. This seemed to satisfy Hayon, and then Hea poured herself a cup, and one for Cora as well. It smelled bright and clear, like fresh fruit, tinged with something spicy, too. Hea's hands shook slightly as Hea poured. Women like you are the most expensive commodity here on earth, Nesme said, but yet so much is kept from you. Tell me, Cora, what do you know of what happens when a woman comes to deliver a child? Cora was taken aback. She wanted to say that such a thing was simple to answer, but came up short with the details. Well, there's the pangs, the, the pains, when the labor begins, and then the doctors called in. Women are sedated systematically, Nesme finished, and Cora nearly dropped her teacup in shock. Husbands are removed from their rooms, of course, as most of you consider it too vulgar for the presence of a man, which is idiocy but effective. We work with the elderman, in the case that a child is born a sib, to ensure that the woman's birth is done in complete darkness, as it were, and the child can be delivered to us. The drug is used as an herb that we perfected, actually. Most often, if the child is a sib, the woman is told it died. There are a few exceptions, such as in the case of Jem and Ez, but that is a story I believe they should tell you. Wait, drugged? asked Cora, still too shocked to form much more in the way of a sentence. Nesme nodded, looking sad again. Doctors are trained, yes. They know of us, but they don't speak of it. Occasionally a child is born without our knowing, but we are typically alerted. Since aldermen have been in the territories, there have been less instances as there are significant fines for concealing a pregnant woman in this day and age, let alone... But surely people know. Eventually, I, I mean, my father? Your father would know well, indeed. He's the alderman. And likely he's a good idea of what's gone on with the Queen's abductions. Convenient that they're at moot, isn't it? I thought about that, Cora said. But he's my father, and I can't imagine he'd ever allow something that would endanger the lives of his own daughters. It could be that he didn't think he was endangering our lives at all. The Queen, any power, can be most persuasive or deceptive, whatever the case may be. Cora, you will learn the truth of it soon, I hope. Hea sighed, wearily, drawing Hea's hands across Hea's face. Soon enough, little will matter. I can feel the forces coming together already. Taking the tea, Cora sipped it. It was much sweeter than she'd expected and extremely floral. It reminded her of the fragrance of the rosette, but a little muskier. She said then, You sound as if you're talking of a coming war. I am speaking of a coming war, Nesme replied shortly. I feel it all around us. We're like bees in a hive here in the Nithings, and now we've been shaken. Something is moving, pulsing, not just above, but down here too. Something is amiss. Old Sibs are dreaming strange dreams, the younger of us speaking prophecies, and prophecies have not been spoken here or above in a very, very long time. What do you think is causing this? asked Cora. I didn't think there were such things as prophecies anyway. 
Oh, you're a child of the drainus. Of course you don't believe, said Nesme wearily. They stole all that was left of our faith years ago, and I suppose in some ways they were right. Since the collision, nothing was the same, but bits, pieces and fragments were kept. The tenders, for instance, the bards, the songs, the rituals of the Soderin and the Ardesians, our clans here and in the north. You mean, like, seedcraft? Yes and no, not seedcraft as the drainists would define it. But, Cora, people used to be able to do things, see things, summon things, sing things, things that are lost to us now. Lost? Why lost? I should say hidden, hidden down in the dark, to keep us safe. But from what? Nesme didn't answer, but on the shelf behind Hayon, a little brass bird set with sapphire eyes let out a long, high trill. It sounded surprisingly lifelike, save for a slight mechanical whir at the end of the song. Flapping its wings gently, it then stopped altogether. As if it reminded Hayon of something, Nesme stood and went to the wall of mechanical tinkerings, leaving the tea to cool, and hummed softly. Hea seemed to have forgotten Cora altogether and her question, and instead was perusing the tinkerings with intense concentration. Cora watched Hea's shoulders rise and fall with Hea's breath, studied the lines of Hea's back, so delicate and proper, and marveled at the rightness of it all. Here, Nesme said at last, come here, Cora. Cora rose and walked around the desk to face the shelves. There was no semblance in the collection, no common theme to connect all the variety of tinkerings there. Some were organic, composed of seashells and wood and the like, while others were pure machinations with exposed coils, gears, and cogs. The others had no category or recognizable purpose. Then there were the weapons. A gun here, a knife there. By the method by which they were displayed spoke nothing of their danger, only of their beauty filigree and brass, inlay and scrimshaw. Alongside the rest, they seemed more museum than military. Pick something, said Nesme. Pardon? Pick something. Anything. But what? It doesn't matter. Just something that speaks to you. Decide quickly. I find first instincts are usually right. She paused, flicking her fingers as she did when she was nervous. But I can't help but ask. How did you get all these sorts of things? Professor has some similar objects that she's made, but they're mostly for the pure love of machinery, the workings. These seem... Unconnected, perhaps? Esme said. And they are, except that they are all part of the same collection. My collection. Some of these objects I sought myself. Others have found their way here. You'd be surprised how much ends up here in the nithings. How do you mean? Esme smiled a low, sad smile. Though our situation, being unwanted children of men, is decidedly dismal, it's not to say that the decision is easy for our families. Many of these trinkets are gathered as children come to us, tokens of guilt from families that would not keep them, usually grieving fathers, many of whom cannot bear to lose a child if they discover the truth. I always give my people the decision to keep these precious objects when they become of age, but most do not. For the majority of Sibs, we do not wish to maintain any connection to the people we were born from. I suppose I can understand that, but why should you ask me to pick something? I'm hardly qualified. I gave Emery a gift, Nesme said. Gem one, too. But I think you possess greater powers of deduction than you might imagine. 
Cora hated making decisions. She felt the weight of it on her now like a thumb pressed in the middle of her forehead. What would Nesme think of her if she were to choose something small and simple, like the silver pocket watch on the second shelf? It didn't look to tell time in any numerical system she knew, but it was fascinating. Or perhaps she should select the wind instrument, the one made of mahogany with silver filigree down its sides. Surely Emery could teach her how to play. But no, there was something else. As she looked and looked, it continued to hold her attention, to rest her gaze back to it. It wasn't that she wanted the gun, exactly. It was only that she could not ignore it. About a half larger than her father's guns, this was a pistol of an older pedigree from perhaps a hundred years past. She had read books enough to recognize it. It would be difficult to fire, and not good at close range, but still. Before she could think further, she picked it up. It was heavy with so much metal, and cool to her fingers. The weapon was composed of curves, not lines, and every detail had been attended to, from the embossed barrel to the ivory inlaid grips. She squinted, trying to make out the design, and her heart skipped. Stags, said Nesme, surprised. The symbol of House Grey, is it not? Yes, but how did she... Nesme turned to Cora. Hea was close to her, but nearly a head taller, Hea's dark eyes rimmed in white lashes as Hea stared down into her face. Not all of us choose to leave everything behind, the Sib said, reaching out and touching Cora's cheek. Hea's hands were soft, the skin slightly papery. As Hea reached out, the cloth from Hea's robe fell down to his elbow, revealing an intricate tattoo that ran from wrist to elbow and presumably further. The design was a stag with magnificent horns that intertwined up the Sib's arm, dotted every now and then with a black flower or star. I, too, was born into House Grey said Nesme, and Cora thought Hea sounded sad, almost regretful. This gun, no, it did not come with me, but with another of my kin, another of our houses. Nesme's voice cracked, and Cora looked up into Hea's eyes. You, you're crying. I don't have to take it, I, no, no. I cry because, Cora, dear, I see parts of your path before you, steps you must take. You choose a weapon of war, a weapon of death. You can feel the storm coming too. The walk to the inn wasn't far, but Cora felt as if her steps were not quick enough. Nesme had given her a holster for the gun, which she'd wrapped around her waist, and its weight was considerable. She'd left her father's guns up in her room, worrying that such a display would put off the peaceful sibs. Now she felt eyes on her as she walked. She tried to hold her head up to ignore the stairs, but she could not. Nesme had said, This is your choice. It is now yours to bear. At first Cora thought he had meant the gun itself, that she was to bear its weight. But now she realized it was the choice she had made that was hers to bear, and hers alone. Finally reaching the door to the inn, she entered, breathing heavily. You okay? It was Jem sitting at a long, dark table, measuring instruments before her. She was wearing a pair of green glass goggles on her head, a pair like the ones Professor used to wear, but more ornate. I'm fine, Cora said, smoothing the front of her smock. Just a little out of sorts. I found you some new clothes to wear, made some adjustments, said Jem. They're up in your room. Won't be as comfortable as the Sibs robes, but at least you'll be better set up for travelling than with that blue frock you had. 
Cora stared at Jem, noticing just how much she looked like Ez, and wondering, not for the last time, where the girl was who had once been her maid. She remembered what Nesme had said about their case being unique, where they had been from, and how Jem had ended up in Vel. "'What is it that you've got there?' asked Jem, pointing to the gun. "'That's some piece. Can I look at it?' Nodding, Cora took the gun out and put it on the table before Jem. It caught the dim light surprisingly well, glinting in the dullness of the inn. The scroll work really was marvellous, echoing the curves and lines of the weapon with remarkable harmony. "'From Nesme?' asked Jem, looking up at Cora. Cora could even swear that Jem's eyes were different, eyes that once she knew as well as her own sister's. She managed a tight-lipped smile. "'Yes. <laughs> How did you know?' "'I saw it there,' Jem said, tapping her head. "'When I got these?' goggles. Seems so, Jem replied, straightening up a bit. She was wearing a long black duster set with shining brass buttons, and beneath it a red close-fitting vest and white shirt. And she wore a pair of men's breeches. Cora knew she was staring and forced herself to look away, taking the gun off the table and returning it to its holster. But she had never seen a woman outside of Professor who almost didn't count wearing men's pants. She didn't quite know what to make of it. Jem did not seem to notice Cora's gaping and walked to the bar instead. Cora asked, "'Where's Professor gone?' "'Doing a few things downtown,' Jem replied, taking a mug of frothy beverage from the innkeeper. "'She'll be back. We're set to leave tomorrow. We didn't come with much, so there isn't much to pack, but we'll have provisions enough before we get to your Aunt C's. "'That's lovely. Oh, and the bard wants to talk to you.' "'Emery? No, the other bard,' joked Jem with a laugh. Emery was sitting in his room, his guitar across his lap. He was bent over it, and there was a long string laced between his fingers. It looked as if he were in the middle of restringing the instrument, except that Cora noticed his shoulders were shaking. He was crying. At first Cora was ashamed for him. It was unseemly for a man to cry in such a way. She drew up to the side of the door, however, and watched him, her curiosity overtaking her decorum. He must not have heard her, for he continued to cry his sobs coming every now and then like hiccups between words he was trying to say. Then a few ticks passed, and the bard drew a deep breath and looked up, wiping his eyes. Cora stayed stock still, not entirely sure the door obscured her from his view. He did not notice her, though, and went back to work, struggling to put the string back on, clearing his throat. He pulled the string taut, pulled again, then tuned it. At last she called out, "'Emery? Cora, is that you?' Cora entered the bard's room and did a short little curtsy, somewhat clumsy in the robe she was wearing. Jem said he wanted to speak with me. Though Emery's eyes were still a little red, he was smiling now, the same smile that Cora had seen before his strange incident, open and kind. His eyes were startling blue, and she couldn't help but recognize that he was a little handsome, especially in the haphazard way his flaxen hair fell into his eyes. I, well, please, please sit down. He started to stand, but Cora held out her hand. I can seat myself, thanks, she said. Part of her was reveling in this newfound freedom, in a world where she could choose her own seats, her own paths. But thank you, she added. Are you tuning your guitar? Broke a string, he said, swallowing hard, then smiling again. I'm, 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 I'm having a bit of a problem. A problem I thought you might be able to help me with you. He trailed off, raking his bony fingers through his hair. "'Of course, I'll help you whatever way I can,' she said softly. 
Emery hadn't shaved since the incident, but his hair was so fine and fair it was only noticeable in the light. As he turned his cheek, light caught the stubble at his chin and cheek, and it glittered a moment like tiny shards of glass. He scratched at it, and the illusion was gone. I'm glad to hear that's that's wonderful. You're you're very generous. Just a friend, Cora said. She wished Emery would get to the point. He had a habit of stumbling over his words when he spoke. She wondered if he did the same thing when he sang. She imagined it would be a significant detriment to his craft. Her last comment, however, sent the bard to smiling so brightly that she could not help but smile back. Good, good to hear the word friend, he said, more smoothly this time. I, I wasn't sure. I mean, considering what happened, and I, I've been a little out of sorts, you understand. We've all been through things, Emery, but that's over now, Cora tried. You said you needed my help. Yes, of course. You see, I remember when I was ill, you sang to me. I could hear you. It wasn't loud, but you do have a lovely voice. A gentle, sweet timber. Cora felt herself blushing before he'd even finished his sentence. She hadn't known he'd heard her singing at all. She'd thought he'd been asleep. <laughs> no one's ever said much about my voice. My sister, Dana, she's the one with the throat of a lark. Well, you see, Emery began, and Cora watched as his eyes glistened again. She looked away, pretending to examine her nails, and then the pommel of her new gun. I've been asked to write a song? It was Ez at the door, carrying some food on a platter, as well as something else in a package, or what Cora presumed was a package. It was at very least an object-wrapped moss and tied with string, in semblance of the sort of thing one might see through the post. As we didn't hear you, said Emery, setting his jaw. Cora could swear the bar didn't like the sib, but she couldn't imagine why. Just brought in some food, don't mind me, said the sib, placing foodstuffs on the side table and the package on the bed. Yes, to write a song, continued Emery. He pressed his fingers into his jaw, biting his lip. And, and I've written it, only... I can't sing it. Why not? asked Cora, curious. Ez did not leave the room, but appeared quite content to eavesdrop overtly at the conversation. It's, well, it, it's really suited for a woman's voice, and I believe you said you could read music. I, I was only hoping that I could sing it? Cora finished. Yes, yes, that. Emery was back to his jumpy self again, now that Ez was in the room. I just, the thing is... It's very important that this song is sung, because I can't... I can't actually leave the knittings if it isn't. This seemed particularly strange to Cora. How's that? He's made an oath, said Ez. He's promised, all of us. Well, certainly they can't expect you to write a song now, not after what you've been through. That's practically monstrous. An oath is an oath, I'm afraid, said Ez. There are no clauses. It's made and it's kept, or it isn't. You may understand what he's been through recently, but... I dare say the rest of the sibs won't. And if it isn't, I mean, if he refuses, asked Cora. Emery said, they have the right to kill me. That's barbaric, Cora said. It's bardic, corrected Emery. It's how we gain trust among other cultures. You see, to prove our good intent. He's the first man here ever. He can't very well go free without consequence unless he proves to Nesme and me and the rest of the Sibs that he doesn't mean to hurt us and he is what he says he is. But you can trust him. How are we to know that? asked Ez slowly, his voice low now. Cora stared at Emery looking to him, hoping that he might indicate Ez was exaggerating. But no, she could tell in the lines of his face and the set of his jaw 
that this was indeed the way of things. It was hardly fair considering what the bard had just been through, but she understood where the sibs came from. Emery had been a threat, and exacting an oath from him, as barbaric as it may seem to her, had been the only way he had been promised safe conduct. And you ought to consider it, said Ez, breaking the silence. The sibs' arms folded across Hea's chest, casual, collected. Cora wondered if Han ever got ruffled about anything. A bulliance seemed to be inherent in Hea's every movement. How's that exactly? asked Cora, curious. Tell her, Emery. Emery stooped slightly, though he was sitting, almost as if he were ducking from a glancing blow. It's not really pertinent, said Emery. I think it is. Might help her to understand, as continued. The bard worried his fingers under the strings of his guitar and slipped them back and forth, making a high whining sound. He seemed to think better of this and stopped, silencing the strings. Cora thought he looked a bit green around the eyes, almost ill. She almost asked him if he wanted some time to himself when he began to speak. When you... When we were able to get out of the cell, there was some discussion about how connected you and I were, Cora. There was a suggestion that perhaps we'd work together, or that we'd conspire to breach the securities here in the knittings. It did seem odd, you have to admit, that we all ended up here when, up until this point, no one had, at least not uninvited, said Emery. But we weren't working together, of course. And they took an oath from you, nonetheless? Cora asked. Ez said, There were some odd circumstances, Cora. You have to admit, what with the bursting locks and whatnot, he took the oath to protect you. She had tried to push the uncomfortable memories of her days in the cell out of her mind, though she still remembered nothing of what had happened and only knew what had been told by Nesme and Emery. It still bothered her. It lingered on the edges of her mind, coming to her every now and again. She couldn't have opened such a mechanism, not by any definition she could understand. Still, Cora had no other explanation. Well, Nesme says things are changing, said Ez, shrugging lightly. Yes, Hea said the same to me, Cora replied. Dreams are being dreamed, prophecies dismal too, said Ez. Not that I can show you or really explain, but it's something we all can feel. Something that moves through us. Maybe it's because we're closer to the roots here in the Nithings, but in the last three years, well, it's beside the point. The point is, Cora, that Emery decided to give this oath to protect you. It's just a song. It's not just a song, said Emery. It's a song sung before every single person in the Nithings. He turned to Cora, his bright eyes sparkling with the prospect of tears. Don't make it sound like a simple matter, Ez. I'm only asking you, Cora, as a friend, to help me. Cora took a deep breath and folded her hands together. Yes, Emery, I will help you, as a friend. <laughs> So it was that Cora Gray ended up standing on a platform in Central District of the Nithings, clasping her hands before her, prepared to sing. The crowd was absolutely daunting, and she doubted her voice would carry very far. And yet, yet, she still felt a great deal less nervous than she had anticipated. There had to be a thousand sibs in the crowd, their black and white hair like large, irregularly checkered quilt, dotted here and there with red. Emery was tuning his guitar nervously. She wondered why he was so shaken, considering he did this for a living. Perhaps he'd never had such a large audience. She smoothed the front of her vest, once again admiring the work. 
It had been a man's leather vest, the sort a knight would wear, except that Jem had tailored it to fit above her corset and chemise. It had a variety of pockets she knew would be useful should the time come. The skirt itself was made of linen, two layers, and Jem had put pockets on this too, embroidered with little flowers, slightly feminine, but not overtly so. Over it all she wore a warm, camel-colored duster that Jem had been given by Nesme. It had fit Cora perfectly. There was a hat, too, dark maroon set with a green feather, but for the meantime she had it off, and had braided her long auburn hair, tucking it underneath so as not to be a bother. Nesme had come to the platform now, moving slowly but deliberately. "'Our friends have brought music back to us,' said Nesme, "'and Emery, the bard of the island of Moor, will pass through to the world above.' at the end of the song. Nesme gestured to Emery. The bard looked as pale as the sibs, his eyes red against his light skin. My name is Emery, he said, licking his lips, and I have asked my good friend, Miss Cora Gray here, to accompany me in the song. There were some cheers from the sibs, but for the most part, they simply fell silent. Cora felt a rushing in her ears, a piercing kind of silence, and she noticed the feeling had left her feet altogether. It was the sound of Emery's guitar that got her attention. It was a sweet sound, piercing through the silence, drifting up through the air. The tune sounded so much more vibrant than it had back in her room, echoing softly against the buildings and structures. She felt the music reverberate in her head, a kind of thrumming, more intense than any kind of music she'd known before. And before she was entirely aware of it, she was singing. Her eyes were closed, and she had the curious sensation that she was the instrument herself, that Emery somehow was managing to play her, mold her. It was as if Emery were making her sing, squeezing notes out of her she never knew she could hit. She could swear the key had been changed, and yet it didn't seem to matter. She was floating along on the melody, and it was a sweet, beautiful, intense feeling, sweet and almost painful. As she sang of Ansa and the Knight of the Rose, she began to swear she could see them, limbed in light before her eyes, and she wept as she continued, the last verse pouring out of her like water from a pitcher. Slip away, I'll see no more you Slip away, I'll 
achieved something great, done some incomparable wonder. She opened her eyes and saw the looks on the faces of the sibs. They were amazed, enraptured. Tears flowed down their cheeks. Emery squeezed her shoulder. There were tears in his eyes, too. Thank you, he said. Thank you. Welcome to Alderpod Notes uh, Beta Test. This is the second time that I've added some notes to the end of the podcast. Um, just really quick, I don't think there's a ton that needs to be said here, other than um, most of this chapter clearly is kind of exposition on the background between Sibs and what happens when they're born. The conversation between Nesme and Cora is really important for the rest of the book and sort of your deeper understanding of the world, as it were. Um, it's always a little bit of a challenge to do that. I kind of played around with a couple of ways that I might bring that information into the story, but I was most comfortable with putting it in Nesme's mouth. Uh, people, anyway, I tend to, <laughs> I tend to believe just about anything Nesme says. So there you go. Um, other than that, the biggest part of this chapter, of course, is the fulfilling of Emery's oath and talking a little bit about the Bardic Oath, how they will essentially stake their lives on a song to get the trust of people that they are sort of uh, imposing on, and the sibs are no different. It's kind of a little bit of a compliment towards them, I think, from Emery's point of view anyway. The song is me and my guitar, so I tried to give Cora and Emery justice. I'm a little rusty. <laughs> um, I used to actually sing a whole lot and write my own original music, and I still do. Mostly these days, though, it tends to be as background music for Alderpod. Most of what you hear in the instrumentals as well are things that I've done on my own. Um, I really enjoyed doing this one. I, I wanted a sort of synthesis of medieval and a little bit of folk so that it sounded close to what I was hoping that the music of uh, Irena sounds like. It's definitely a challenge to do that, but um, because it's an older song, I got away with a little bit more of an Irishy Celtic vibe there, channeling a little bit of a Moira Brennan, I think. <laughs> But uh, I hope you enjoyed that part. I'm also providing the MP3 of just the song alone in case you want to hear that at a higher quality because I know compression tends to kill things <laughs> in uh, in podcasts. But um, other than that, I'm getting to work on AlderPod 21. Thanks for 20 great episodes. Uh, I really do appreciate it, and it's definitely exciting to be moving along. Only 10 more chapters to go. So remember, I love hearing feedback from listeners. You can reach me at aldersgatecycle at gmail.com or aldersgatecycle.com or aldersgatecycle.wordpress.com. Feel free to leave comments in the podcast's actual posting or underneath the AlderPod listing, which is aldersgatecycle.wordpress.com forward slash AlderPod. AlderPod is written, produced, and performed by Natanya Barron under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 United States license. Thanks for tuning in again. Mm -hmm.